Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Monday, the 1st of October, with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. Housing is set to dominate the agenda this week as a dull motion on Wednesday. We'll see politicians debate alternatives to the government's response to the crisis so far. Uh, People before profit motion supported by Solidarity, Sinn Féin, Labour, the Social Democrats, the Green Party and Independence for Change would, if adopted, give all of us a constitutional right to housing. When the debate takes place inside of Leinster House, demonstrators will gather outside under the Raise the Roof banner. The protest is being organised by the Irish Congress of Trade Unions, the National Homeless and Housing Coalition, the Union of Students in Ireland, the National Women's Council of Ireland and a number of housing agencies in support of this stall motion. Breed Smith is a People Before Profit TD for Dublin South Central and joins us on the telephone. Good morning to you and thanks for joining us. Uh, People Before Profit will move this motion, as I said, with the support of most of the opposition parties, but Fianna Fáil seems uh, not on the list. No, they haven't uh, They haven't um, supported it so far. Now, they might put in some kind of an amendment or some alternative motion on the day. They often do this. But really, all they're doing is grandstanding. You have to pardon my voice. I had a bit of a virus in my throat. I can hear that, um, yes. But they're, they're grandstanding because they have obstructed um, many opposition motions on an end to evictions and to homelessness, uh, to get a, a referendum on the right to housing in the Constitution, to uh, build public housing on public lands. They've obstructed motions and policy documents from the opposition right through the last two and a half years. And uh, I don't believe Fianna Fáil are genuine about their um, so-called, you know, tears and approach to housing. I, in fact, when you look at their history, the Galway tent and their relationship with the developer and, and builder class has been always very, very strong, just as it is with this government. So, yeah, but the rest of the opposition parties are supporting it. And more importantly, civic society, the NGOs, the non-governmental organisations, mm. the trade unions and all of those groups that you listed there, mm. And beyond um, are are are, uh, are are coming out in their in, in their numbers on Wednesday to support this motion because people, as we know from recent events, are extraordinarily frustrated with this perpetual housing crisis. It's never ending. 
always getting worse. And even the other day, the minister said in the dial to Mick Barry uh, that he didn't believe it had peaked yet. Indeed, I see the motion itself, though, has the support of the UN Special Rapporteur on yes, the right yes, to housing, yeah, as yeah. well as 50 leading housing experts and academics who've backed this motion. Uh, and uh, there are many aspects uh, to it. Uh, it would uh, lead to the construction of public housing. Uh, there would be measures to stop people from being evicted uh, and made homeless. Uh, but when it comes to enshrining the right to housing in the Constitution, what in a- effect are you looking for? Are you looking to hold a, a referendum on this? Yeah, I mean, I don't think that the, 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 the urgency of the right to housing in the Constitution is as urgent as you know, just get your hands dirty and build houses on public land and build affordable housing as well as social housing as well as cost rental housing, a mix of of the uh, of types of houses that will accommodate for a mix of incomes that um, people out there have. Um, but the right to housing in the constitution is an important acknowledgement that governments should be responsible for the provision of a safe, uh, accessible, and um, affordable space for families in the society that they sit over. Like if you compare. Sorry, Dublin, I think, has about 6%. Uh, Dublin City Council has about 6% social housing, maybe about 6, 9 or something. Mm. But if you compare that to other countries like Denmark, um, like Austria, like Germany, you're looking at anything between 25 to 45% is social housing. And so we're way behind the curve on this, as usual. We're behind the curve when it comes to the provision of anything that is, uh, you know, socially um, necessary and fundamental to our human rights, like health, education and indeed housing. Okay, we'll be speaking with uh, Damien English later in the programme. No doubt the Minister will be telling us uh, that the government delivered thousands of social housing units to people last year and the year previous, and that in years to come those numbers will increase, and that we have to give the government time uh, in order to see the progress that they're making. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to um, bore the audience with the constant ding-dong tennis match about figures that goes on over the uh, what the government did and didn't do. The facts speak for themselves. Homelessness is rising. Evictions are rising. The number of families in housing crisis is rising. And the accessibility to housing is, is, is and affordable rent and affordable homes is absolutely not uh, within the, the, the grasp of the average industrial worker, the average wage. Um, and even those who are in a bit more struggle really hard to be able to get mortgages to buy the homes as they are in the market now. So the minister and the minister before him and whoever comes after him are failing. And it's not because they're nasty individuals. It's because they have a terrible policy. And that policy is to rely almost exclusively on the private market for a social need. And that's what this motion really is about, to say that we need public and affordable housing on public lands. We need to put the resources into uh, CPO and derelict properties. Um, We need to provide for a mix of income and household types. And we need to control rents in a proper way and ensure that nobody is evicted into homelessness. And ultimately, that housing becomes a a human right enshrined in our constitution. And your views are echoed, uh, it would seem, by the Jesuit Centre for Faith and uh, Justice, uh, which has 
published uh, letter Call for Action by Christians in Response to the Housing Crisis. It was published on the website of the Association of Catholic Priests in advance of a pastoral letter on homelessness, which is to be published by the bishops today. And the Irish Times is quoting from the Jesuits, and they say that the problem is because of the dominant policy response by successive governments to growing waiting lists, and that that has been to subsidise private rents at a cost of almost €2 million per day. Therefore, they say it cannot be for lack of money that the problem is not being solved and they're supporting the action uh, and uh, the protest. Oh, I'm delighted to hear that. And I mean, you might ask Damien English when you come on later on what role that the the banks and the vulture funds are playing in the provision of housing because I'm facing a situation where 72 houses, which are not yet completed, I think nearly half of them are completed, uh, social houses in an estate in Cherry Orchard is part of the collapse of a company called MDY. They've gone into not receivership, what's the bit before it, examinership. And um, I believe, and I've asked the minister twice, in public and by PQ, uh, because I have information from the local uh, council, that the the reason MDY are gone into receivership is because they had a, a, a historic debt to a vulture fund. Now, if that vulture fund is allowed to put um, a consortium, that a, a building developer company, that is, is providing hundreds of social houses at the moment in Wicklow, Kildare in Dublin, and that this, these social housing projects have collapsed because of the greed of these vulture funds, then somewhere, somewhere in the Department of Finance, they need to account for this. And I know that this issue will get shoved around between one minister and the other. But actually, when you look at the legacy of the 10-year 10 10, 10 anniversary of the bailout, the banks are still pretty much controlling what happens to our economic system. And I believe that at the root of that particular incident, you might ask Damien English about it. Mm. MDY is the name of the company and it's all over the papers yesterday. But it's the Department of Finance that will have responsibility. But they have not answered my question. Is there a vulture fund responsible for calling in this debt? And if there is, then why are the vulture funds constantly holding us to ransom and now holding us to ransom over the building of the social houses in Dublin, Kildare and Wicklow? Okay, we'll ask the minister. In fact, uh, we'll give uh, the minister uh, advance warning of uh, that question. Your motion uh, is on Wednesday of uh, this week. No doubt we'll be hearing uh, an awful lot more about uh, uh, the crisis and uh, the related issues uh, and I hope that we get to hear you speak in the debate I'd uh, imagine you'd need to look after your throat in the yeah, meantime. Yeah, I'm sorry about uh, that. Not at all, I'm thank you for struggling through under the circumstances. Just, yeah, just yeah. so people know we're 12 o'clock at the dial, people out there can make it. If they're working in the city and they're on their lunch break or if they can come into the city, it starts at 12 to 2 at Doyle Aaron. Okay, Breed Smith, thank you indeed for joining us this morning. Breed Smith is uh, People Before Profit TD for Dublin South Central. Now, a number of newspapers are reporting uh, this morning uh, that there are no community policing vehicles available in Drogheda or in Dundalk. This is because either they had reached 300,000 kilometres on the clock or the engines in the vehicles themselves had failed. Rich Gulhan is a Fine Gael councillor in Louth and he's also a retired guarded detective. Uh, this is uh, a little bit shocking, is it not? Well, if it was just uh, community policing uh, vehicles that were at, 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 uh, that, that, that were lacking, uh, Mike, I mean, it would be, it would be something. Um, I know the situation with the community policing ban. Uh, there's a shared, there is a shared ban between Dundalk and Drogheda. 
at the moment. That's one van that they share between the two biggest towns in the country. Um, in Drogheda, they actually the, the situation with patrol cars is absolutely dire, and they've been looking for patrol cars for some time now. Um, so you effectively you have two patrol cars uh, that cover the whole population of forty one thousand in Drogheda. Plus, uh, they have to must cover Dunleer, Monaster, Boyslaw, Head and Term and Fekin. Um, this is absolutely totally acceptable, and it's a dangerous situation. I'd hasten to add, um, we have probably sixteen detectives in Drogheda alone who carry out multitudes of tasks, obviously, which is uh, very serious in crime investigation. For those three detectives, there are three patrol cars. Sorry, those 16 detectives, there are three patrol cars. They just cannot effectively do their job. Really, what's happening in Drogheda at the moment is that you have a reactive police force. You have a proactive police force. And this is simply down to a lack of investment, a lack of uh, uh, patrol cars, uh, um, and, and indeed a lack of men, manpower. If you take the manpower alone in Drogheda, and I know that the, the patrol cars are one thing, but if you take the inspector situation in, in the Loud division, you have effectively no uniform inspector in Loud at the moment. You had two who have been promoted to uh, detective inspectors. Um, in Monaghan, if you compare the Cavan Monaghan division to the Loud division, you have seven inspectors. Uh, in the Cavan Monaghan uh, uh, di- uh, division. Um, of course, inspectors are hugely important in terms of, um, you know, the, the jobs that they carry out uh, and, and, the, uh, and, and, and administering, you know, the force kind of thing on a, on a ground level. Um, so, I mean, it, it's, it's, you know, we, you know I, I've spoken to a number of ex-colleagues of mine and uh, they're perplexed as to why the biggest, the biggest, uh, two of the biggest towns in Ireland are, are lacking in the basic essentials, mm. i.e., patrol cars to go and do it, effectively do their job. Um, it's, 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 it's a very, very worrying thing, and I mean, I'll certainly be writing to the minister in relation to it because uh, now that we have effectively cut all overtime and there is a ban on all overtime, we're going to see an obvious rise in in crime and a, certainly a lower detection rate if uh, if this isn't addressed immediately. Right, and uh, why is there, you would imagine that there would be an automatic replacement of vehicles when they fail like that, that uh, a unit uh, would be uh, allocated a certain number of vehicles, so if one is taken off the road, that it would be automatically replaced. Why is that not the case? Well, it's, it's, they're not being replaced simply because this is a, a fleet management, management problem. Uh, it, it needs more investment in patrol cars. Uh, that you know, so that when you have a situation that some of the cars, which are you know around three hundred thousand uh, kilometres uh, on the on the clock, um, and you know, I'd hasten to add that you know a car with that amount of miles on the clock, you know, is 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 dangerously defective and has to be. It can't be fit for purpose really for the job that uh, on Garda Shikana do. Um, it's just that there is no investment in the uh, in the fleet. And uh, so you lose a patrol car, and at, at, at present there's a patrol car in the garage, um, having been involved in, a, in, a, in an accident there recently in Drogheda, and that looks like it won't be back on the road um, in any, sh- in any, you know, in the short term, mm. uh, and that won't be replaced. So it is a fleet problem. We need, or on Garda Shikhan, need more more patrol cars, and they need more resources, and that's the bottom line. And mm. you know, we talk about going over 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 budget by. Uh, I think it was so many millions, I'm not quite sure. Uh, however, that budget <coughs> effectively 
it creates a situation where members of the force can go out and investigate crime. The, the Loud Division has secured huge results in terms of serious crime in the last 12 mm. to 18 months. Uh, and that is that will certainly be effective uh, um, as a result of this. Um, 300,000 kilometres is a, a, an awful lot of miles on the clock, isn't it? Are, are, are the cars that are available to guards effectively bangers? There are, there are certainly a percentage of them that are bangers and, and they're not fit for purpose. And this is why I say that a huge investment must be made by government uh, in, 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 in securing a fleet that is fit for purpose. Um, I mean, would you drive a car, uh, you know, as sometimes when you have to drive at excessive speeds, uh, would you drive it uh, uh, three hundred thousand on the clock, Mike? I don't think so. I wouldn't, and I think it's you know it's 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 highly actually, in my opinion, uh, irresponsible to send uh, members of the force out in vehicles that aren't fit for purpose. Now, when it comes to community policing, uh, as a, a number of uh, the papers are reporting this morning, uh, there's uh, proactive response in terms of preventing crime rather than responding to crime after it happens. And in the run-up to Halloween uh, and events like that, uh, as we uh, approach bonfire season uh, in all of the towns and villages uh, across uh, the region now, I gather that, generally speaking, people would be out trying to prevent bonfires or dangerous bonfires and that sort of thing. But I'm reading this morning that some guards are asking their colleagues for a lift. Well, if they don't have patrol cars to get to engage with communities uh, around the division here, and certainly in Drogheda, um, you know, they either walk or they, which is, you know, I mean, it's 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 not right, um, or they're they're depending on colleagues uh, in patrol cars to give them a lift, and those colleagues are stretched at the moment, kind of thing. If you take, as I've mentioned, that we know we have a population of around forty-one thousand in Drogheda. I mean, that's a huge, huge number um, of of people to uh, to police. At any one time, so I mean, the the, the chances of, of getting a lift even from a patrol car because they're that far stretched is 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 practically nil. Um, it's <coughs> it's just an unacceptable situation, Michael. I mean, if you take and you go back to the 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 unfortunate Cameron Riley murder in Dunleer, at that stage, and that was it was highlighted how badly stretched the force was here in the Loud Division, and certainly in the Drogheda Division. You had members using their own their own cars to carry out very serious investigations, to get from A to B to carry out door to door and the other investigations that go on with the, in any murder investigation. And, and that was quite. Is there, is there a question about the legality of that, uh, or, or uh, if uh, they're indemnified uh, if there's an accident? Uh, does there are there insurance implications? In other words. Well, that obviously is an, is, is an implication because when you take your car out and you you, you apply for your policy, um, they'll ask you if you're using your car for work, and effectively, members of the force are using their cars for work, mm-hmm. uh, which would you know which would avoid probably their insurance in the event of an accident. But um, I just think that it's absolutely scandalous. Basically, it's a scandalous situation. And I think that it, it has to be addressed. And, it's, it, you know, the new commissioner that's there, obviously this is, has to be one of his primary objectives in ensuring that we have a police force that have transport that's fit for purpose and indeed tra- any transport at all. And if the cars are bangers, uh, well, that's uh, great news for the criminals, isn't it? Uh, I mean, if you're fleeing a, a bank robbery uh, in a high-powered vehicle, uh, it's all the better if uh, the car chugging behind you doesn't stand a, a chance of catching up. 
Well, I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd find it uh, very difficult to understand how any member of the force would travel in a car that has over 300,000 miles past 60 kilometres or 60, 60 miles an hour. And I think that they'd be putting themselves at risk. Uh, as I said, this is it's just a totally unacceptable situation and I certainly will be writing to the Minister in terms of the, the lack of resources in Loud and, and, and hope that that's addressed as soon as possible. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you, as always, for joining us uh, this morning. Richie Culhan is a uh, Fine Gael councillor in Loud and a retired Garda detective. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now to the tragic news of uh, the death of a 19-year-old who passed away after being treated at Connolly Hospital in Blanchardstown. Joe Hayes had been attending the dance music festival Boxed Off at a Ferry House in Rat Oath and local councillor Gerry O'Connor of Finnegale is on the line. Gerry, what have you been hearing about what happened on Saturday night? Yeah, well, obviously the detail is a bit scant at the moment, but I understand that he took bad uh, when he was actually leaving the event uh, after, after at the end of a very, very long day. There was a big line-up on it of top international artists. And he took well, he took bad. Uh, he was treated by the, the medics that were on, 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 on duty and taken by ambulance into hospital and unfortunately he passed away. Okay, and uh, reports of a, a number of people falling ill for that matter. Yeah, well, I think there's an investigation going on. Uh, it's obviously very, very worrying uh, with these events uh, because the type of music is people can be very, very active for a long time, uh, dancing and what have you, and that can bring on exhaustion and things like that. So hopefully, uh, you know, hopefully we'll get to the bottom of it and, and learn from this. It's, it's obviously every parent's worst nightmare is to have a child, whether it's a son or daughter, going out to an event like that and not coming home. So obviously my, my thoughts and prayers are with the, the family at this very, very tragic event. Uh, difficult uh, stage. Indeed, uh, the parents, family, friends and neighbours in Lusk uh, undoubtedly mourning the loss of uh, this young man out socialising, uh, having a, a good time no doubt as would have been the intention of so many people attending this event because it's a big event but dance music uh, events are quite often associated with drug taking and I'm sure that has to be a consideration at this stage. Well, I don't know. I'm sure the guards will look into that. I mean, I, I wouldn't like to, to, to be uh, drawing any conclusions. I mean, obviously, it, 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 the, the family was very concerned to find out what the cause of the death was. Uh, uh, you know, 19-year-old, your life's the front of you. Uh, I a 20-year-old, and uh, it's, it's, it's not something that you'd like to think about. Undoubtedly. Uh, any, any events in relation to, no matter what type of event you are, uh, drugs, unfortunately, is a course on, on our country and uh, on our county. No matter what you do, uh, they're always there under the surface. So I hope it has nothing to do with a group of drugs. And I hope that that, uh, that the security was tight enough not to put it. But, you know, unfortunately, it's a, it's a world we live in and it's, it's, it's very, very worrying. It's more, it's more dangerous than drink. Uh, because you don't know where the source of the drugs are coming from. It's the fourth year, isn't it, of uh, the Boxed Off Festival at Ferry House. So I gather that the promoters are uh, experienced and uh, well-equipped to make secure the area. I would imagine they are. I would imagine it is four years, and, and this is the first time that this, this has happened. Uh, tragic as it is, I think we shouldn't jump to any conclusions. Uh, like any event, uh, this this uh, company seems to, on a very professional uh, 
set up. They had the necessary first aid people on, on board and doctors and medics and, and security. And they had a lot of people there uh, and it was sold out. Uh, so people vote for their feet. If, 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 if it's not a very professional operation, people won't come back to it. The lineup itself was, was of an international uh, standard, uh, some of the top guys out there. And uh, so obviously uh, people were attracted to it. I wasn't even aware it was on, to be honest, uh, Michael. It's not uh, my type of music. Uh, and I suppose that's as it should be and uh, that is uh, what it is uh, to be young uh, and so many young people uh, attending over the weekend uh, and it being the fourth year that they've hosted uh, the event uh, undoubtedly uh, it will continue to grow but uh, I take it there's been concern locally by people uh, who wouldn't have had boxed off on their radar like you in the community and uh, I'm sure there's concern uh, about going forward with such an event. Well, I'm sure there are. I'm sure the neighbours of, 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 of the event, uh, I know there were some concerns expressed about the noise of the event, and obviously that's something that, that, that we'll have to look into. Noise does travel a long way. I mean, we, we had thousands of people in Dunshockland at the same weekend uh, for a harvest festival. And, uh, you know, you always have to, at the end of it, you have to have an exit uh, interview really and look and see what went well and what went bad and obviously this went very bad uh, and obviously uh, when they come for their licence and uh, that'll have to look at To balance all of that uh, is it not the council that issues the licence? Yeah, that's what I'm saying, when, when the licence is when they come for the licence it'll have to be the council have to look into all of the investigation and obviously the investigation in relation to this tragic incident will, will be completed hopefully by then Okay, but then the license is issued by the officials, is it, without uh, the knowledge necessarily of uh, councillors like yourself? Well, it's 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 not something that I've I've been on my radar. I mean, very hard, but I mean, it's something we'll be on the radar from now on, like I'm sure it'll be something that we'll be looking at very carefully for events like this uh, in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, the council have put in a whole protocol in relation to only in the last two years in relation to any public event, whether it's a street fest or whether it's a harvest festival or whether it's just putting up bouncy castles, it's a very, very uh, itemised list that, that anyone applying for a licence for one of these public events has to go through. And that's only been enhanced in the last two years. And uh, so obviously we, we, we might have to look at that again. And there was a, a medical team on site, uh, which uh, I'm sure is a prerequisite, including an yeah. emergency doctor. And advanced paramedics uh, treated the man on, on site. I presume that they uh, arrived after the emergency call, though. No, they might have probably, I know in some of these events, you would normally have those on site. I mean, when I ran discos here in the community centre, we always had uh, uh, an ambulance on site with, with, with uh, emergency responders in it. Uh, just in case anyone took part. Mm. Uh, so that would be, I, I would imagine that would be part and parcel of, of the requirements for the protocol. Okay, and I, I suppose these questions are only being asked now uh, because uh, of the fear of a, a reoccurrence of uh, uh, an incident like this. But as you say, uh, thoughts and uh, best wishes uh, with uh, those who are, are mourning the death of uh, this 19-year-old, Joe Hayes, uh, who passed away for whatever the reason was. Uh, yeah, well, yeah, I mean, these events are very intense uh, and exhausting and, and, and we could have just got excited and, might, and I would hope it would be something like that. Obviously, we are, we are obviously shocked in, in the community of, of Sophie's Mead in, in relation to, to, to the fatality of somebody so young. And as I said earlier on, our thoughts and prayers are with the family and friends. 
Okay, thank you for joining us uh, this morning. That's local Fine Gael councillor Gerry O'Connor. Michael, Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. The Garda National Economic Crime Bureau is a unit dedicated to, to the investigation and prevention of bribery and corruption. It was established last year and in the last week has launched a special telephone number where people can report bribery and corruption on a confidential basis. We're joined by Superintendent Jerry Walsh to hear more about this. Good morning to you and thanks uh, indeed for joining us. And you're looking to hear from people who can report bribery or corruption, as the case may be, that's occurring within this jurisdiction or indeed outside of the state. Uh, hello, Michael. How are you? Yeah, that's correct, Michael. Um, it's, it was an anti-corruption unit that was set up last year within the Garda National Economic Crime Bureau. Um, obviously, the, the unit deals with lots of other issues. But, yeah, the idea is that we're seeing a lot of uh, reports, international reports, which suggest that corruption is quite endemic in Ireland. I think there was a survey the European Commission did in 2014 which suggested that 81% of Irish respondents considered corruption to be fairly widespread in Ireland. Yet we're not seeing those sort of reports on a face-to-face basis at guard stations, etc. So we feel that this type of line at least will allow the public give them an opportunity to make me either an anonymous or a confidential report to us if they feel uncomfortable you know doing that directly in a guard station or doing that in a more public way uh, and uh, what do you mean uh, when you talk uh, uh, about corruption or bribery uh, i mean are you talking about at a, a certain level or are you talking about at all scales well it's at all scales i mean the the, the basic offense i mean the criminal justice corruption offenses act 2018 came in in july and it consolidated all the legislation that we had in Ireland in the last 100 years. And that ranges from, corruption ranges for the very basic, uh, paying a 20 euro bribe looking for a service, to, to larger international bribery and corruption, uh, bribery and corruption that involves businesses or governments operating overseas. So, I mean, there are all levels of it. But fundamentally, the basic corruption offence really is about two people or two entities one that gives a bribe and one that receives a bribe and there's obviously something wanted for that. Uh, and perhaps that's the reason why you don't hear about it too often because the people involved in it are involved in criminality themselves, uh, the person who's bribing and uh, the per- person uh, who's accepting the bribe. Absolutely. I mean, the whole idea of that bribe, it creates an unfair advantage for the person who's doing business and the person who's receiving the bribe. And of course, they want to keep those things secret, but it has a much wider impact on, on, on other aspects of society, on, you know, competition. It creates inequality. You know, it leads to loss of confidence in governments and institutions. So it, it can have a huge knock-on effect on why people think the bribe and the bribery and the corruption is just about themselves. It can have, affect a, a much more wider audience, and that's really why we're, we, want, we want to make sure that if it's there and if it's endemic, that people feel they can report it comfortably and safely without feeling exposed in any way. And I, I gather that, uh, to some extent, it is endemic in that there's a level of human nature where people are, are quite happy to accept money uh, for the obvious reason and uh, people are quite happy to pay it if it uh, makes a situation advantageous for them. Well, certainly in some cultures, it's the way people do business. It's not something that we see a lot of in Ireland, but certainly there are features of it. And I have no doubt that there are business transactions occurring in this jurisdiction that are certainly helped by actions of that nature. Uh, What about the internet uh, and uh, how that has changed uh, the way people behave in relation to this? 
Well, well, from a corruption perspective, I suppose the internet has has increased all levels of criminality because it makes criminality much more um, accessible than it used to be. But the only thing that I would say, most of this bribery and corruption is very much undercover. So the notion of people sending maybe emails or advertising or doing anything of that in relation to offences like this wouldn't, wouldn't be that likely, really. So it would be something that you wouldn't, that that might necessarily have assisted in. It's In a lot of cases, we have um, business, Irish businesses doing business overseas and maybe there are local customs where that sort of uh, business sort of activity is a common way to do business and we're not going to see that here unless somebody tells us about it so I think it's really it's much more hidden than a lot of other criminality that you might see in the internet. Okay but I I gather as well uh, because we do hear uh, about people on the internet uh, who are acting in a a way let's say uh, that uh, they wouldn't want others to know about uh, and they come across people who are willing to take advantage of that uh, whether it's uh, uh, some sexual uh, behaviour or maybe they're having a an affair or something like that. I suppose that's that, that we're probably getting into more sort of scenarios there. Like, are you talking about blackmail or something like that? Or yes, are you talking yes, about? Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, I suppose yeah, that's that's an element. But they'd be a different type of offence. I suppose it's very important for us that people, if they are making reports, that they focus very much on this type of legislation. The confidential line is for offences of corruption, whereas we have many confidential lines and, and other means of reporting cases like that. Uh, and for people who believe uh, they have information that will be of interest to you, uh, do they need to provide evidence with that information? Well, obviously, that's what we would hope. I mean, we're looking for credible allegations of, of corruption, be it foreign or be it domestic. I mean, it's, we're, we would be concerned if our reports that we were getting were saying, listen, look at a particular organisation, everybody's corrupt in that. That doesn't really help us. But we're looking for particular transactions, particular incidents that people are aware of that they may feel needs to be brought to our attention rather than a, a, a generalisation because that we're not going to be able to investigate those sort of generalisations. It would really have to be a credible allegation. And would it be a thing where somebody might need to give evidence uh, in support? No, well, I mean, our view, this is a confidential yeah. telephone line. We're looking really for intelligence in relation to instances of corruption. If people want to make an anonymous report, that's fine. We can never... Uh, ask them to go to court. If people want to make a confidential uh, report of corruption, uh, we'd like to work with them and see what information they have and we'll do our best to find other sources where we can confirm this sort of information if we have something to go on. But if we have nothing to go on, our idea isn't to suddenly create a a line that people suddenly feel if I contact that, I'll have to go to court because that's generally the reason why they haven't made a direct report in the first instance. Okay, and if uh, people do ring this uh, telephone number to make a, a report, they leave a voicemail for you, is it? Exactly. What happens is it's, it's a 24-hour line. They can ring at any particular time. It's only manned during office hours. Our office hours here are 9 o'clock until 11 p.m. at night. And they leave a message, on the, it's, which is emailed to our anti-corruption team, and they listen to the allegation. And if it's the case that they need to contact the person, they'll come back to them. And if it's an anonymous report, we just act on it ourselves. Mm-hmm. All right, and that number is one eight hundred forty sixty eighty. That's right. Thank you indeed, Superintendent Jerry Walsh, for joining us uh, this morning. Uh, that's uh, the bribery and corruption confidential reporting line one eight hundred forty sixty eighty. Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael. Some calls already and texts in relation to Garda cars 
or the lack of them. Um, Raid from Drogheda phoned in and says, how can you expect there to be any morale in the Gardaí at all when they haven't even got the basic equipment uh, or vehicles to do the job that they need to have? Deirdre from Kells thinks that it's an absolute disgrace there are not enough cars for Gardaí in Drada and in Dock and thinks it's absolutely unacceptable. She wonders what would happen if there was a major accident. She says that she's actually fuming since hearing about the issue. Mm. John in Denor also got in touch on the same topic and John says that Richie Calhan is a Fine Gael councillor and that it is his party that is in power. He says Fianna Fáil, or Fine Gael even tell us that the boom is back but it looks far from it if we don't have Garda cars up to standard. He says that it's time for Richie and Fine Gael to back up their talk instead of waffling on the radio, as well, John puts yeah, it. I suppose Richie did say that he's going to write to the minister himself about it, yeah. Um, Grania also got in touch and Grania says that she can't believe what she's hearing, that there aren't enough vehicles. That when you look at the population in Drogheda alone, that there needs to be vehicles for the guard each year, simple mm. as, uh, says Grania. Uh, then just... Frank got in touch, Michael, and I think it's just ahead of the of, of Damien English, the junior minister coming in. And he, Frank is saying that he's from Athboy and that uh, he voted for uh, Deputy English all his life on the provision that there would be a hospital built in Navin. And Frank said that he has been told all along that there wasn't enough money to build the hospital. But he feels now that there is money there and he wants you to ask Damien if he is going to see this through that will there be a hospital built because that's what he voted for Fine Gael for he's saying uh, another listener got in touch uh, Louise in Kells and Louise just again just saying uh, can you ask Damien English when he's in what is happening in relation to the hospital in Navin my god yeah well I think that's long off the agenda alright people okay. don't forget Michael mm. Uh, it seems that way anyway uh, another listener was in touch in relation to housing Jimmy thinks that there needs to be a cap on people entering the country until the housing crisis is mended if not he says it may lead to Ireland exiting the EU like the UK um, jo- <laughs> some jump okay <laughs> right <laughs> that's his thoughts John uh, thinks that uh, people like Breed Smith are he has a lot of admiration for, but he just wonders if this protest will make any difference. That the government have been told time and time again from people in charities who are dealing with this on the ground that there is a huge problem, much worse than ever before, but yet nothing is done. Well, maybe there's some uh, truth in that. Uh, I think it's also true to say that there's uh, a lot of weight behind uh, this protest with support from uh, the Irish Congress of uh, Trade Unions, apart from anybody else, but groups like the National Women's Council and uh, the Students' Union of Ireland and uh, all of the other NGOs, uh, the UN Rapporteur and the Right for Housing is in support of the campaign and the merits of the motion and uh, there's uh, 50 academics uh, who have uh, signed up to it uh, as well so I think uh, it'll bring some attention to the issues that are to be raised in the Dáil motion on Wednesday. 
Mary phoned in on the same topic and she says it's time now for the ordinary people to stop just moaning and to speak with their feet. And she's saying that everybody who is affected by the housing crisis and even if you're not directly affected, that you should make your way to Leinster House and show your support for this campaign, that people need to speak up. And Mary feels that there is power in numbers and if enough people turn out, well, the government will be forced to take action. Okay, well, I'm sure there's a a lot of people who would support the government's action, the action that is being taken by the government uh, at the moment. After all, they've been elected to to office and it's uh, one of uh, the remits of uh, the government to look after social housing and uh, so forth. And I'm sure there's uh, many others uh, who don't have much interest in it either. Joanne says that she lives in County Meath, didn't say whereabouts exactly, Michael, but just wanted to make the point that I'm sick of listening to all this talk about the housing crisis and nothing being done. She says, I'm trying to save for a house. It's just beyond me when I might end up being able to afford one. Still living with my parents in my 30s. It's not nice, Michael, not knowing whether you'll ever have your own roof over your head. Okay. So that's just a flavour of some of them. Very good. In this morning. (laughs) In relation to the housing. Uh, We have a Vox Pop too, Michael. Okay. I was out in a bed. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. As listeners have probably heard by now, LMFM, it's, it's Road Safety Week and LMFM is doing its own campaign to promote kind of safety on the roads. And I was out and about asking people if they thought roads had become more dangerous. Oh yeah, the roads are definitely dangerous, especially in the local estates. Some of them, like the boys, they'd just be dry, dry riding around and everything like so they do. So Speed. Speed, yeah, speed would be the main factor like so it would, yeah, yeah. And you have three children. I have indeed, yeah. What ages? Uh, eight, five and six months. 
So would you be nervous letting them out to play? I would, yeah. Oh, yeah, you're always conscious about them going out, like, so you are, especially with the roads being so dangerous, like, because that'd be my big worry, like, when they do go out to play, you'd be constantly keeping an eye on them, so you would. <laughs> and would you like to see a bigger clamp down on speeding? Oh, yeah, definitely, like, especially in the local estates, as I said, like, it can be quite dangerous. Some people just have no consideration for the kids on the streets, like, so can't, they can just, it's messing more than anything, showing off, like, so. But it can lead to accidents. Oh, definitely definitely like if it was someday they are going to seriously injure somebody like and it might take then for them to realize like you can't be doing it in the estates or whatever like well in general i think the motorways are brilliant they're fantastic for getting from a to b but in the rural areas especially down where i live now on the ballymckenny road in Drahada, the traffic is going by my house at 60 and 70 kilometers an hour easily and they just they're on their phones the guards never seem to put them up for using their phones and I don't use my phone when I'm driving. I'd be afraid to, to be honest with you. At my age, using my phone. Well, it's illegal. I know that, but I'm saying that the young people just... I'm not saying every one of them do it, but an awful lot of them do it. And uh, especially that road where I live on the Ballymckenny Road is a nightmare. Even to try and get off your driveway at times is very difficult, you know. Have you had any near misses? Oh, a few over, I can tell you, a few over the years. A few near misses, yeah, I have, yeah. yeah. And not your fault? Oh, of course not, not my fault. No, 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 never my fault. <laughs> Do you think roads have become more dangerous? Yes, they have. And even on the traffic lights, they're not safe either. Because when you're trying to cross on the green light, the cars are putting their foots down, they're going straight through it. And it's not... I'm not just thinking of adults. I'm thinking of children that has been learning how to cross the roads when you're trying to teach them. And they see the green man, and here's a lorry or a car coming straight forward to race again the lights. That child is gone. So what do you do? You seem annoyed about it. Yes, I am very annoyed because I'm crossing the roads myself and I was nearly caught by a lorry. And I asked, I said, what are you doing? And he goes, like that, and he stopped right in front of me. Just missed me, and cars have done it. I've actually tried to cross on the green man, right, tw- three times or more, a car has nearly knocked me off the road. So now, I don't go by the traffic lights. I'd rather rock the road now when I see it clear. So it's no use going by the traffic lights. And for the roads, they're gone to hell altogether. There's too many cars on it. I am nervous because you're watching behind you. You don't know where, which direction they're going to come. Some of them don't even put their indicators on when you're crossing the road. So what are you supposed to do? Even on my own estate, I'm looking to see which way a car comes. They're coming straight for you. When you put your foot out in the road, then they indicate and you go, what are you doing? I know. And they give you the fingers. So what are we supposed to do? Do you drive yourself? No, I don't. I walk. That's why I won't drive. And when you're a passenger in a car, do you feel nervous? No, not when I'm with a proper driver. I'm actually safe. It's just when you're walking the roads, it's not safe. They don't care about anybody else on the roads. And drivers would say, just flicking it over for a moment, drivers would say that the pedestrians don't take enough care, that they step out onto the road. Now, I'll pull you up on that. There are some people that don't care about the drivers. They will just go out in front of them. But certain people, certain drivers don't give a damn about people as well. There is genuine, proper drivers out there that have respect for the roads. Because I have parents that do drive, and I do know people that do drive. But there is a majority of them that don't care. They just put their foot to the ground. Do you worry about road safety? Yes, because when people are driving cars, they're not paying attention to the road. They're looking left or they're looking right instead of watching. Because it's a weapon they're driving, really. And especially on West Street, people are crossing over. That's West Street in the centre of Drogheda, which would be the main thoroughfare. And you don't drive yourself? No, no. But you know all these things. And uh, sometimes people go with the traffic lights. So I never watch the traffic. 
traffic lights. I watch the traffic instead because uh, sometimes they go through the lights, they're not paying attention. So you, you'd be nervous when you're crossing the road? Very, very much so, yeah. And have you had any close ones? I have a couple of times. So now I always watch the traffic. I look at them and sometimes they'll direct you and t- tell you it's OK to cross. But they don't tell you there's a car coming out from behind them. And they're the ones you have to watch out for. Some people shouldn't be behind the wheel of a car because they're not driving properly. They're not paying attention. Or they're on the phones. I don't know, many times I've seen people with phones in their hand when they're meant to be driving. It's Irish Road Safety Week. Would you be concerned about the roads nowadays? Do you think they're more dangerous? Oh, far dangerous. You know, nobody has any manners on the road. They'll drive across you, you know. Uh, The bicycles are the worst. Uh, I'd be terrified trying to get overtake a bicycle. And when you overtake one, there's another one on top of you, you know. Do you feel that motorists don't have as much regard for pedestrians or do you think that um, motorists get a raw deal? Motorists do get a raw deal. People don't. Just People can step off a footpath out in front of a motorist just the same. To me, uh, you have to be very aware of what's on the side of the road as well. We live out the country, and some time ago we were going to Mass one Sunday morning, and there was a pedestrian on the road, and it was there was sun ahead. It was bright, and then it was dark, and my husband was a couple of inches from hitting her. And with this world, it's travelling at a low speed. We're going to Mass, and I was worried because my children were coming behind me, and I thought they wouldn't have been travelling as as slow as we were. And there's always the worry about pedestrians wearing dark clothing. This girl, particular girl, said to us, oh, that's my second time I was nearly done, and she had a black jacket on her, you know. So you should be wearing the illuminous jacket. Or what, and they've all out, and should be all uh, well lit up. They're having a hope on the road, especially the by-roads with the traffic. There you go. A lot of uh, people there with a, a lot of strong thoughts speaking to you in Drogheda Marie. That's right, Michael. Can I finish up with one comment? Sure. Uh, Pat from Carrick and Cross said that it's hard to believe the situation with the lack of Garda cars. He suggests that we should take all the cars repossessed from criminals, throw a lick of paint on them and use them as Garda cars. He says there's cer- certainly no shortage of repossessed cars. OK, well, thanks for that. And thanks, Marie, for bringing us all those thoughts and comments on the programme today. As always, we'd love to hear from you. If you'd like uh, to ring our telephone number, 1850 715 958. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM. Now, Fine Gael TD for Meath West and a Minister with a for Housing Damien English uh, joins us as we mentioned earlier on when we were speaking to Breed Smith Minister uh, you would be here uh, and she asked us to ask you about MDY Construction Limited which has been placed into examinership Uh, the company apparently has debts of uh, around 5 million euro and has contracts for 190 social housing units which it says will cost 38 million euro to complete yeah, there are a number of contracts, state contracts, uh, through three different local authorities. Uh, the main focus for us as a housing department, working with the local authorities, is, is to secure those sites, which we have done, and to make sure that, that, that they're protected, mm. and that the taxpayers are protected as well. 
uh, naturally we want the houses to be delivered. And the subcontractors, no doubt, uh, who are owed a lot of money between 140 and €150,000, I think, uh, and they say there's no prospect of being paid and they're wondering why this company was given the contracts in the first place. Yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be very difficult to make sure everyone gets, everyone gets paid, but that's what there's a process there that we will try and do that because mm. we, we see this, this is a familiar story with other companies and companies can go through difficulties. We have to make sure that where we can, A, mm the state has protected a number two then that the, the employees and other uh, companies and subcontractors are also protected mm. as well. It, seems a, schools, it yeah. seems a legitimate question to ask why a company yeah, okay, in that, that, debt, uh, because the, a lot of these debts are historical yeah, as well, the, the, why they were given the contracts. Okay, just, just, just two things in that. I want to again be clear that the houses will be delivered. There will be some delays in some sites, uh, but they will be delivered because the, uh, all, all these contracts, the state is protected and these are state-owned lands, so we will have the houses and naturally we're working to make sure it happens as quickly as possible. In relation to why the company won the contract, again, there is a tendering process there, a public procurement process is there. It's extremely tight. Mm-hmm. The company were obviously able to prove that they, they were able to manage their debts and were able to, able to build houses and construct houses. Um, and naturally, I'm sure the local authorities will review all the, all the tendering documents and see if there's anything there. There is a legal complexity with this now in relation to the crosses, local authorities and three or four different departments. So the Department of uh, Public Procurement, the uh, Department of Enterprise, Trade and Employment, our own department as well in conjunction with local authorities so this will be worked through but obviously at the time they won these contracts and these contracts were issued at different stages over the last number of years the company were obviously able to prove they were a viable company like any company we deal with in most cases are carrying debt yeah. and they work through that um, so I, I'll be honest with you, Michael. It's not my. Mm. I can't give you the full details. Well, of can, can, it's not can my you, position. Okay. Can, can, can you answer the uh, main question that Breed Smith was asking here this morning, uh, and that is if a vulture fund is called in the debt? Uh, that's not something I can answer, Michael. I mm. mean, th- that's private well, business with a company. Uh, my un- understanding is they have debts that they're working through. Mm. Uh, I understand they, they, they believe. But your understanding them. is that yes. they would have worked them through. Now they're placed in examinership. Yeah, the question is, is they, legitimate. Yeah. Why have they been placed in examinership yeah, well, it, despite passing the government's tests? Okay. Well, again, they passed the public procurement test. Mm. Not a decision by, by me or any minister. Mm. It's separate to politics. Mm. And Breed knows that too. Yes. There's a process there. To I build public housing though. Yes. And it's, but like any public contract, there's a public tendering system, whether it's a house, a mm. school, a college, whatever you're building. Okay, but do you not know? There. Do you, do you and, not and want to know why, Minister? I, of course it, I do, but yes. I, I can't mm. decide on a contract. Mm. That's not my job as a politician. Mm. It's separate from me because of the past, mm. where things were obviously done wrong. So there's a very straight system there. There's a process to be worked through now. The company has got difficulties. I understand they believe they can work mm. through them. That's what happens when you go into an examinership. There's an opportunity to try to work through that. I hope for everybody involved because of a lot of state contracts and I'm sure mm. if they're able to successfully complete all of these, they should be in a position to okay. pay their bills. Are you asking, and let's put it a, mm. another way, Minister, are you asking yourself this morning if the state has been wrong-footed by a fulture fund because it has called in a, a debt unexpectedly? Mm. Again, Michael, there, there's a tendering process there. No, I'm asking you if that's a question but, you're but, asking. Michael, I, I, I'm not in negotiations with the company and their bank. No, but do you not, not, do you, do you not in, want to know the I can, answer? I can speak in general, right, in, in all situations in relation with his, with his death. So there's no point in asking the question. But, to Michael, with respect, it's a legal mm. situation. Right. It's not my job. I'm not I'm asking, not you, I'm not asking you to make a determination. Ask, I'm asking ask, you if that's a question that you would like answered. Of course, there's a question that, that has to be answered. And again, when anyone's debt is bought or sold 
or in relation to who owns it, there is a process of how that debt is paid back. Because it, likewise, we have banks which have sold off mortgages recently uh, as well, and people are concerned. And there was a debate in this last week in the Dáil, and the public, the, the Department of Finance are very clear on this. You're, there are the same protections are there regardless of who owns your debt. So there has to be the opportunity to work through that debt, through the debt, and mm. pay the debt. Obviously, this company, there must have been a viable company or else they would not have been able to win these contracts. So I presume there should be time and space there for that to be worked out. The dealings with their own individual bank, I can't comment on. Okay. It's not my job mm. as a minister. But you're, you're, you're guaranteeing that the houses will be built. I'm guaranteeing the houses will Are be built. Are you guaranteeing that everybody that will be, be paid? I, I can't guarantee that, Michael. That's not my position. I can't do that. Uh, companies trade with each other under different circumstances. I certainly hope everyone's paid. And naturally, uh, in all those contracts that were awarded, there, there's a lot of money involved. So I presume if the company worked them through, they should be in a position to pay everybody. But I can't physically do that. I can't make that happen. There are protections in law that go so far, but there is always risk to business. And, and I hope people get paid. I can't mm. make that happen. I'm sorry to say that, but I'm, I'm, okay. I'm not allowed because I'm not in the tendering process. That, that's not the position of, of, our, of our department. They're done through local authorities. The protection's built in. Uh, and in most cases, this works very, very well. But yes, there's difficulties here. OK, this issue uh, was raised in uh, the context of uh, the conversation we were having in the run-up to Wednesday's private members' motion and indeed the support that motion has from the Raise the Roof campaign, which includes uh, the Congress of Trade Unions, Women's Council, Students' Union and many different NGOs. Uh, indeed, the UN Special Rapporteur on the right to housing uh, what are your thoughts going into this? Uh, I mean, is this a, a case of uh, the government being the only soldier marching in line when you have so many people saying, change your policy? I, I think if you look at what's behind the motion, uh, everybody wants the same as we want, more houses built and as quickly as possible. Uh, and some of the groups that are involved in supporting this, I've met them over the years, so, and uh, some of them are politicians and they're in the Dáil every day of the week. We have motions every week in the Dáil discussing and debating around housing, how we can deliver houses quicker and what everyone wants to do. And the, the centre of this motion here is to spend more money. but And we are doing that. Like This year, the capital spend went up by 40%. There are over 16,000 houses at, uh, across 1,000 sites. Social houses have been built. Uh, and they're all at different stages. Mm. Uh, and the, the, the aim is to get the supply up to 10,000 houses per year. Next year, it will be at 9,500. All the political How many parties, was it last year? Last year was about 7,000. This year, it'll be at 8,000. That's a combination of, of build, yeah. construction, acquisition. Yeah. How many were built? Um, last year, well, in the less last than eight hundred. No, no. Uh, what we'll see this year, um, there'll be over four thousand houses directly built. Mm. But into the, with the supply of social housing, mm. will increase by eight thousand. Next year, by nine thousand five hundred. The aim of anybody involved in housing was to get to ten thousand, which is very close. The next year, constructed to houses in the system. And no, we buy no, houses. no, no, no. Sorry, but sorry Michael, mm, just to be very clear mm, on this. Yeah. There's a there's a different there's many different ways to deliver social housing. Mm. Some are brand new construction directly built by local, and that's what this motion is calling. Some for. some are acquired, some are leased, mm. and there's a combination yeah. of ways. Mm. We've been very clear mm. on this that when you're at zero to mm. get to ten thousand construction takes a number of years. So in the meantime, you, you rely on other ways as well, bring back in vacant properties, uh, buy houses, acquire houses, and so on. So our job is to deliver up to ten thousand houses a year. We will do that. And naturally, but you constructed but about less than 800 last year. Well, ag again, we started at zero. This year, it'll be at 4,000. My job and Owen Murphy's job and our department's job, working with local authorities and NGOs, mm. is to deliver houses. And I made this very clear last week. Week in, week out, we've had debates around housing. In, and the last one in July, I asked every political party that was there for to bring forward any suggestions they had to deliver 
and build houses quicker. Yeah. I'll be honest with you, Mike. That's what I got back. A blank page. Okay? So you can have all the motions in theory. Uh, my job and our Murphy job is to actually make the houses happen on all the sites. Mm. Week by week, we go to site by site. But you have to, to be making houses. them happen. This well, there's where you're wrong. Yeah, I mean, but no, when, but when you're you, wrong but, with that, the but, facts don't back But you when up you now. talk about 7,000 houses, uh, you, you, you break that down and say, well, we constructed less than 800. Uh, the Jesuit Centre of Faith, as we mentioned earlier on, uh, supporting uh, Wednesday's mm. demonstration and uh, the report on the Irish Times quotes uh, the statement that they published on the Association of Catholic Priests website yesterday saying that the dominant policy response by successive governments to growing waiting lists has been to subsidise private no, rents at a cost of almost two million a day. Uh, therefore, it's not a, a lack of money that's uh, the problem. They actually say that you're making r- wealthy developers richer. Mm. Okay, just two things on that, Michael. Um, I've listened to this quite a lot by people who comment and say that the dominant response is to use private housing. That actually isn't the case. And just give me a second to answer this. We have committed, the taxpayers of this country have, are spending $6 billion on housing. This year it's $2 billion, okay, to bring forward new social housing through a range of methods, directly build, acquire, refurbish, all the different ways, lease, long-term lease and so on. Okay, the money is committed to, to, for this country to deliver up to 10,000 new houses a year and thereafter, the long-term plans are money secured on the Project 2040 to build and to deliver at least 12,000 social houses a year. So that is a strong commitment to a supply of social housing. It is wrong for anyone to say that we are not committed to doing that. It is true to say in the shorter term, for the last couple of years, and as mm. of building up the new public housing supply, we've had no choice but to work with the private sector to fill that gap to make sure we have social housing. So yes, there are a range of schemes there which will rent houses from the private sector and so on because we have we need houses today. Mm. And I want to be very clear on this. I've asked people to give me new ways to build houses quicker. We will do whatever we can to build quick houses. But we can't draw them. We have to actually physically build them. And that can't be done in a month or two months. We went from zero... And we'll, we're getting to 10,000. It, it takes mm. a couple of years. But I can bring you today across a 1,000 mm. sites that we're building social houses and I can show you where they're now being built. They weren't there a year ago. They weren't there two years ago. I agree with you. But now they are there. But it takes a little bit of time. So yes, in the short term, we have to work with the private sector as well. I would much rather we had our own housing stock, mm. social housing stock. But previous governments, my generations, didn't want to do that. And my job and Owen Murphy's job is to, is to start building social houses again as we're doing. How many people are homeless in the country now, Minister? Is it wrong to say it's less than 10,000 uh, because 1,600 people or thereabouts have been recategorised, people who would have otherwise been considered to be homeless? Again, Michael, yes, there are about 9,500 people who don't have a, a home. Or, or in, in hotels or in B&Bs and so on. There was, a, uh, there was an issue over the last couple of months since February where in some local authorities people were in a house some cases their own mm. house, they're in an apartment block or so on, that has affected about 600 people in total, 200 families. And yes, the system has reclassified them to say they are in a house because they are in a house. They're in an apartment or a house with their own key. Mm. And so I don't think anybody would count them as homeless. Um, the people who are on the homeless list, who are living in hotels or B&Bs or other emergency accommodation, are about 9,500 people. Again... Uh, if you're if you're in a hotel if you're in a house we don't count you as homeless. Mm. Um, the number of people. But then, you would have. The, 
in, in over the years, this was this was noticed up in to February, a year ago. Up to uh, in February, March yeah. this year, we realised yeah. as soon as we realised it because I think anybody, the taxpayer would say that's a crazy situation. Mm. If you're living in a house, you're not homeless. Um, last year, then just to be clear on this as well, uh, about seven uh, over the last eighteen months, seven thousand and sixty adults who were homeless who had no house are now in a home. So there is some progress we made here. I, I'm the first to admit, and so is Owen Murphy in our department. It's there's it's it's a terrible situation. It's not enough. And there's still people who are aware of the house. But we have to also give people a little bit of hope. So if 7,000 people have come through the system, have left homelessness, are now in a house, and you have about 6,000 adults now on the homeless list, you know, okay. that, that shows we can get on top of this and we will. But you can only mm. do that by building houses. And all these motions, well, more houses, more money, but none of them actually build the houses. That's our job. Well, they, 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 they certainly focus minds and we'll have they, a, they a, a, that's a fine. lot that's more fine. talk, I'm sure, about the situation over the course of the week. Minister, thank you indeed for coming into us uh, this morning. Damien English is a Fine Gael TD for Meath West and a Minister of State with special responsibility for housing. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Well, Road Safety Week gets underway today and runs through to Sunday. The Minister for Transport is Shane Ross and joins us now. Minister, how effective are these type of campaigns, do you think? I think, uh, good morning, Mike. I, I think they're pretty effective uh, because they're concerted, they're consistent and they go on throughout, throughout the year. Uh, we've seen in, in recent years a, a series of these type of campaigns. We had Project Edward uh, a couple of weeks ago to reduce the number of road deaths and have a, 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 a no-road day, day throughout Europe. Uh, we'll have a campaign at the end of this month for, before the bank holiday weekend. And we've got this campaign, which is Road Safety Week as well. The, I think the figures would suggest uh, that they are effective, but we've still got a, a, a totally unacceptable number of road deaths in Ireland, but what we have seen is a, a an encouraging trend uh, where they've been coming down in recent years, particularly from 2006. They're they're down a lot. They're they're down marginally this year, uh, and that that's down on last year, which was the lowest year ever. So I think the campaigns it would indicate that the campaigns are are effective, along I think with legislation and and other other measures as well. But I, you know we've got a long way to go, but it. it they're very intense, these campaigns, and they're very consistent. Indeed, there's many strands uh, to the uh, success in road safety. I think last year was uh, the best road on record in terms of the amount of fatalities. Uh, but, I mean, we've better cars than we would have had years ago. Uh, there's things like the NCT to make sure that's uh, the case. There's legislation, as you say. And there's also enforcement, and enforcement, many would argue, the most important strand. Yeah, enforcement is very, very important as well. And obviously, there, there have been difficulties there because of the Guardi being being under the optimum strength, of course, and uh, that's going to be improved in the next two in the next two years. We've got a commitment from the Guardi on that. <clears throat> but you know, the yeah, we are in we are now in fourth place in Europe, which is a which is a fairly healthy place to be. If there's any, if there, although there's no good place to be in this league table, but we're only led by the UK, Sweden, and Denmark, mm-hmm. and that's. We've been moving up that table gradually on a, on a, at a very steady basis. So I think you'll find that the uh, the, the campaigns are effective, and and that's got, they've got to be seen in in the light of the fact you say okay the you know the roads have improved since 2006, but mm. the number the amount of traffic is it has increased enormously. So in in the light of the fact that the uh, the traffic's in, increasing a lot, I think the fact that road deaths are coming down is is encouraging, although it's never acceptable. Are, are these campaigns value for money, do you think, Minister? 
I think anything is value for money if you save lives. Mm. I, no, under no circumstances would I ever judge the saving of lives in terms of money. I'm afraid, you know, I, they, 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 you, you know of course they're expensive, but uh, if, if, if we can point at the end of the year and say the, these campaigns actually save several lives, there are people walking the streets now because uh, because of these campaigns, it, it's worth every penny of it. I, I, they, yeah, sure, they're expensive. How, how expensive are they, Minister? I mean, we're talking, what, two, three million euro a year on these type of campaigns? I don't know off, my, off the top of my head what they've cost this year, but they're increasing. They're obviously increasing in, uh, in, in, in expense uh, because the advertising, television advertising, the amount of work, the logistics that go into it. Yeah, they, they, are, they are expensive, but uh, the RSA is given the budget specifically to, to reach this objective. And, and they spend it, I think, very wisely. And I hope, you know, that combines with something which is not expensive, which is introducing legislation. Um, and that, that, of course, is effective as well. I mean, we've got some fairly powerful legislation uh, being enacted this year and in 2016, and we'll, other, other legislation which, which will be introduced hopefully towards the end of this year, which will, which will save lives as well. And that's, that runs in tandem with what you, what, you know, what, the campaigns you're mentioning. Mm. And altogether that with enforcement and and other stakeholders involved, I think, have combined to produce what are any, what's an encouraging trend. I take it road safety is compromised by bad behaviour, which is caused by a, a bad attitude. And maybe it's a bad attitude uh, that looks on these campaigns as patronising messages. Uh, I mean, people don't get in the car uh, uh, feeling that uh, it'll lead to their death. So when you have a, a European initiative that there'll be no deaths on the roads, uh, some people might scoff of it, uh, scoff at it. Uh, and if that is the case, uh, would the two or three million euro that is spent on these campaigns not be better spent on enforcement? Well, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. I think it's, a, it's a, I mean, I think if you're suggesting there's no enforcement, yeah, which I don't think you are, uh, I think it would be unfair. There is enforcement, and we saw some figures the other day which showed that the number of the, <clears throat> the number of Gardaí uh, out on the out on the roads uh, with breathalysers has increased recently, and is increasing was higher than was anticipated. So, yeah, I, I mean, I don't know the answer to your question. You know mm. how, the, how the balance would be exact because this isn't an exact science. You never know exactly how many how many lives you do save by by any of these campaigns. All you can see is what you're doing, and then the results and the results are, are better than, we, than, than, than last year. I think we would like to spend more money on, enfor- more money on enforcement. That is a matter, obviously, for the Guardian, the Department of Justice. Uh, and the, the fact of the matter is that the low enforcement or, or the, uh, the, the number of, uh, the number of uh, uh, convictions and the number of charges and the amount of enforcement may be not as much as we wanted to be, but we committed to improving that. Uh, and we will improve it, and, and that that is that is that is a pledge which has been given been given by the Guardian, it's been given by by the Justice and it's in the programme for government. It will it will improve, and there, but the campaigns will continue as well. I don't know what the balance should be, nor does anybody else, but I do know that something is going right. Uh, do you trust Garda's statistics at this stage, Minister? I, I think the ones on I think the, that I do now. Yes, I think we've had the assurances that they're absolutely reliable now, and I think we can. We can believe them. I know that the history has been less less than than we'd wanted, and it's been deplorable in some cases. But I think now that's the case. We have a a meeting this afternoon, uh, which is what they, which is a meeting of all the stakeholders on road safety, and at, at every 
on every occasion. We hold that every three months, and that will include the Minister of Justice, uh, the Attorney General, uh, a representative of the Garda Commissioner, if not the Garda Commissioner himself, uh, and other key stakeholders. And one of the questions we always ask is, the first question we always ask almost is, how is enforcement going and other statistics reliable? And I think we, we've got assurances, uh, certainly on the statistics. We, we would like to see more enforcement, but that's something which is a matter of guard resources which is coming up. But that, that, that is another of the vehicles which we're using uh, to ensure that we keep ever vigilant on the road safety issues and on the, on, on the road fatalities. And uh, the guardie and I and everybody else around the table there answer questions from each other and we're well tested and well challenged. Uh, I think you called uh, one of uh, the independent uh, TDs a, a road safety terrorist or, or words to that uh, effect. His view had the support of a, a lot of Fianna Fáil TDs in terms of uh, the recent drink driving legislation that uh, you introduced. Uh, and some would argue uh, that the Gardaí will be enforcing legislation that has been made uh, law now because uh, it will put people off the road wrongly because let's say they had a, a few pints last night and are sober this morning but over the alcohol level. Uh, uh, what do you say to that, Minister? Well, yeah, you're, you're right about the quote. Uh, it was a bit of a colourful exchange as far as I remember <laughs> in a, in a t- at a time when there were a lot of colourful exchanges going on. Um, yeah, I don't, think, I don't think the view of, uh, of those few rural TDs who, suppose, who actually opposed this legislation was shared by anybody, any of the parties in the end, in the doors in the of the final vote, I think, was passed by 75 to 8. Yes, because Fianna Fáil abstained. Yeah, because Fianna Fáil abstained, exactly. But I don't think they shared that view. Fianna Fáil did start off by uh, taking a position which was hostile to the bill, but they moved, I think, with public opinion and, and with the evidence over a period of time. They did abstain. So I don't know what their view is, I suppose, is the, the answer at this stage. Um, yeah, the, the answer to your question about them saying, look, that the, the, the morning after is, uh, is is it unfair? Is very simple. If they're over the limit, it means that they are impaired. And to say, look, it's the morning after I've mm. sleep since I'm all right, uh, is not in accordance with the facts. They are still impaired, and they are, they, once you're over the limit, you're over the limit. And people have got to take that into consideration. It's it's uh, it may be very inconvenient, but they have have to take that into consideration if they're driving the next morning and and. To, to suggest that you could allow people over the limit at certain hours of the day. Well, it's right. a very low limit, uh, and people will say there's uh, a, a, an alcohol level that I've uh, exceeded, but I, I'm sober and fit to drive. Uh, and why not have guardy outside of pubs on a Saturday night? Well, I mean, it, I, I, I don't accept it's a low limit. Uh, the, World, the World Health Organization, which is not a body which you could punch your finger at and say is, is in any way prejudiced this day, is quite adamant that uh, alcohol of any sort impairs your driving of any amount. Here we're talking about a degree of 50, which is you can't measure in terms of how many pints, etc. It varies from time to time, but it's not a particularly low limit. Uh, if, you accept the, if you accept the premise that the intake of alcohol impairs your judgment as a driver, I don't think you'd say that 50 is a, 50 is a low limit. I think that's, that's probably unfair. I think you've got to take a, a fairly independent view of this and, and if, if the World Health Organization says look uh, alcohol is impairs your driving you're going to have to take a very serious view of the limit of 50 to 80 which is where we changed it Okay well look thank you indeed for joining us at uh, the start of Road Safety Week this week Minister
That's Shane Ross, the Minister for Transport. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, the Peter McVerry Trust has opened an office in uh, Drogheda and uh, to tell us a little bit more about what will happen from there, the Chief Executive Officer, Pat Doyle, is on the phone. This is a, a regional office, Pat, and uh, you'll serve loud, obviously, uh, along with Kevin and Monaghan from this office in Drogheda. Correct, Michael. It is. It's our second regional office. Uh, we have one also in, in the... Um, in Limerick, the Limerick Clare area. So we're delighted. We're delighted about that. We have a really good partnership with uh, um, Loud County Council, Cavan and Monaghan, and we were we tendered last year and won um, some work up there to do some housing support to support people in their homes, to support people who were at risk of losing their homes, and to support people who are just beginning uh, to you know to maybe have a tenancy for the first time. So offering yeah. a lot of hand holding, a lot of support. And we're delighted. And the office is just another, uh, it, it, it makes sure that the team is on the ground there, but it also, it shows a commitment from the trust that we're, we're here and uh, we're here, we're doing business and we're planning to stay. So we're delighted. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're here, as you put it, because there's a, a need for your services. And I, I guess that that in itself uh, should be of worry to people because it's a sign of an escalation of what is a national crisis, but one that has centred uh, in places mainly like Dublin and Cork and Limerick. Absolutely. So <clears throat> Cork, Dublin, Limerick, Galway, Waterford has um, has the highest population of, uh, of housing need at the moment. But Loud, uh, Drogheda, Dundalk, um, you know, Cavan, all along the northern, uh, the eastern seaboard. There, uh, we have the, you know, we have the majority of the population lives on the eastern seaboard. Therefore, we have the highest amount of need. And I think since we've come in there at the moment, we've worked with eighty-six households uh, um, in the Loud area. So, eight, eighty-six households, and we have uh, helped another thirty-six people progress and move on into accommodation as well. So, that's only the beginnings mm. of it. Now, we've opened our first family hub in Loud last week. That was in Drada also. Uh, we're looking at units with the county council uh, in the Dundalk area. Um, there'll probably be a need for another family hub in the Dundalk area fairly shortly as well. But the first family hub in Loud opened last week with the trust and we have six families in there. Right, uh, and it's a, a very new situation for the people uh, who are being accommodated there, uh, not just for themselves, but in terms of what they've experienced, uh, because uh, I suppose uh, where it has historically been a, a problem, people have seen other people in that situation. Uh, this is something that is moving out of Dublin and coming closer to home in the sense. Uh, and I gather that for that reason, it, it makes it all the more stressful for people who are trying to come to terms with this new reality. It is, and, the, and it's just new realities for the trust as well. In the sense that traditionally, we're, we're 35 years in operation. Some of your listeners would know, some of them may not. Mm. 35 years, primarily working with the younger single individuals. Um, but in the last couple of years, as everybody knows, families families uh, facing economic difficulties, families losing homes, families uh, in, in distress, have been coming into homeless services. And the trust began to work with families about three or four years ago now, and. I think last night we had 78 families in our care. So that's a new thing mm. for us as well. And within those 78 families then, you know, we had 170 children. So uh, there'll be there'll be children this year in, in family hubs for Christmas and that'll be new to them, new to families and new to the, to the work of the trust as well. But we're up for it. Um, Loud County Council is a particularly progressive 
local authority. They've been doing well in relation to uh, compulsory purchase of units. They've been doing well in bringing back uh, um, disused properties, uh, over-the-shop properties. Dundalk and Drogheda would have a fair few of them. We're looking at ACE in Drogheda at the moment in partnership with the local authority uh, where uh, they were once offices and now they may become accommodation. So lots of new things happening, but uh, I think... We're delighted to be in partnership with Louds County Council. Uh, they're one of the... Indeed, there's no shortage of uh, empty properties, uh, some of them derelict, uh, but plenty of vacant properties uh, across the Drogheda region, as we were discussing last week uh, with a, a local councillor who was suggesting that, where appropriate, compulsory purchase orders would be placed on them. Uh, but in terms of uh, the problems that you're dealing with locally that people are facing themselves, it probably comes down to what we're continuously told is supply and demand. Uh, we hear this over and over. And the reality of that then is affordability or unaffordability. Because if you look at Drogheda itself, uh, there's yeah. probably six or seven two-bedroom apartments uh, that are being advertised as we speak this morning. Uh, and you'll do well to get one of them for less than 1200 a month. That's it. And there'll probably be a queue behind you. Um you know, and uh, landlords, uh, it's a landlord's market at the moment. So what we need to do is there's been no build for quite a while, um, and, uh, you know, over a decade now. Uh, there are plans for new builds. New builds take time. You can't bring a new build uh, about in less than two years between planning, procurement, builds. So we need to be looking at the vacant properties. And Loud have been particularly good in this as well. And the Trust has been has been pushing and advocating for this as well, around looking at the vacant properties, separating those who are in legal disputes, those who, are, who uh, maybe are wrapped up in, uh, for different reasons, and, and trying to pull out what is available. And we're doing that right across uh, um, Drogheda now, um, and we hope to do that in Dundalk as well, and we're partnership with the local authority. So mm. if we can, like, in, we, we did it in, in, um, in South Kildare, and we started, we looked at it, 208 properties. And when we windled it down for all the different reasons, we ended up at 42. But 42 properties would make a huge difference to families who are in hotels and B&Bs and homes. 42 properties could mean that families could have, 42 families could have the key to the doors or 42 singles. And that makes a, a huge difference. So, you know, it's a big issue here. We're not mm. going to solve it overnight, but a simple exercise like that from 200 units, we were able to get 42. And if we could do that in in, in all the populated areas, in, in, in Loud, Monaghan and Cavan, that would make a huge difference to the citizens of those countries. Okay, well, people, uh, if they're looking for you, will find your new office on Lawrence Street in Drogheda. We've run out of time, so I have to leave it there for the moment. Pat, thank you very much thank indeed you. for joining no, us. Thank you, Mike. Thank Pat you. Doyle is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of uh, the Peter McVerry Trust, and that brings our programme to its conclusion today. There'll be a podcast available on our website, lmfm.ie, this afternoon. Thanks to Marie Kearns uh, for producing and Ross Leahy for researching today. Chris Murray was at the Control Tower. I'm Michael, and God willing, we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow. Tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at LMFM.ie Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.